Welcome. This is jazz, just the way we like it. My name is Alfonso Severos, and this is my weekly jazz podcast, recorded live at Brick Arts in downtown Brooklyn, the People's Republic of Brooklyn. We play those classic jazz songs of the 1950s, the 1960s, and the 1970s. And we also play some of the modern stuff. We play jazz, we discuss jazz, and we discuss politics. We play songs that I listened to as a young man. And here I am now, playing them for your pleasure. And also, more important, to introduce a new generation to the fabulous art form known as jazz. Keep the music going. I'm in the studio, as always, with my co-host and good friend for over 60 years, Lawrence Williams. Hey, Larry, what's up there, good brother? All right, how you doing, man? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, man. You know, <coughs> we uh, did not do a podcast last week. You know, the uh, studio was occupied. Uh, but we're back and uh, looking forward to playing some good music and discussing some important issues. How about you, buddy? I'm looking forward to it, Al. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> okay, man. You know, we always start these podcasts off on a song that deals with social issues. And if you are a product of the 60s like me, you probably know that Daniel Ellsberg, the person who leaked the Pentagon Papers, ended up bringing down a president that magnified the opposition to the war. And it showed how the government was in compliance and they knew all this stuff. And these presidencies and Congress were lying to us. And in fact, Henry Kissinger called Daniel Ellsberg the most dangerous man in America. And in 1971, he leaked the Pentagon Papers. And for some of you, you know, it's, it may be difficult to imagine, but there was a time in the 60s and 70s where this country was 100% split on war. So there was not patriotic stuff. No one was saying thank you for your service stuff. People were calling GIs baby killers. Uh, and at that time, when you reached the age of 18, every male had to take a pre-induction physical. And if you weren't married with kids or in school, by the time you were 20, between 20 and 21, you were drafted. Mandatory service, regardless of your beliefs or what have you. And it so happened at that time, there was the conflict in Vietnam. Oh, what a, what a time. People were in uproar. And uh, the government was saying one thing, but the Pentagon Papers told us something completely different. And we bombed the hell out of that country. Uh, now, you know, it's, it's so, so ironic yet sad is that I read in the paper a few years ago, two or three years ago, that uh, Starbucks opened up in Hanoi in North Vietnam. And, you know, you know, it was a country, they were mortal enemies. 
and many people I know and, and other people know died in that crazy conflict called Vietnam. Well, Daniel Ellsberg uh, recently died. And uh, he was a hero to the anti-war movement uh, with his releasing of the Pentagon Papers. And he died June 16th, 2023, a few weeks ago. And he released those papers in 1971. And, it, and a lot of the country was against the war and those papers and what was exposed with the U.S. government and involvement really increased the number of people who were against it. And he became a spokesperson for the anti-war movement. And there was a song done by him, not by him, about him, called Written in the Mind of Man. And this is a song sung by James Stein. And so also our piece on social justice today is to listen to this song about Daniel L. Ellsberg, written in the mind of man, James Stein. So folks, sit back and enjoy. This country comes from the hearts of men who stood out from the proud. And the time has come again for good men speaking out. There was a man behind closed doors who shared a secret truth When he couldn't stand it anymore, he told everything he knew And the people on the streets of the cities and towns all across this mighty land Woke up from a dream when the word came down and began to understand Telling us wrong, getting us into deep. And the government got betrayed. He broke the law, they say. I say that he upheld the law, written in the mind of man, that the truth must find a way. I'll never forget the day, day that Daniel I pay. I've heard that decision made more and more these days. It's the old story of speaking about what people know inside. They don't like coming face to face things they're trying to hide. And the government felt betrayed. He broke the law, they say. I say that he
written in the minds of men, James Stein, about Daniel Ellsbury, who recently passed away a few weeks ago. You know, he was a top official in the Pentagon, and he had access to all this information and analysis on the war. And they were telling us one thing in the media and the official government spokespersons, but it comes to find out everything they were saying were lies. And the Pentagon Papers exposed them. Now, he risked life imprisonment. Uh, fortunately, that did not happen. But uh, when those papers, I remember distinctly when the uh, Pentagon Papers came out. I was already against the war, 71, man. I was in my last battle trying to beat them. I mean, I fought with the draft board for a good five years. Finally ended up, you know, uh, winning. I guess you can call it winning. I didn't get drafted. Um, all right, that's our song, Larry. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I remember that too. And uh, um, I remember going down to Whitehall Street uh, for the, the, the physical. Um, I was in college that first year, so I, I got a, uh, what's that, 2S or 4S for that. Student deferment. Yeah. And then after that, after my first year in college, uh, uh, I got married. So I got a married deferment and uh, um, a school deferment. So I, I, that was the reason why I wasn't uh, in the war. Uh, but I did lose a lot, of, not a lot, but I lost uh, some friends uh, who I grew up with in the Marcy and and uh, you, you as well. Um, so I don't, I, I wasn't. <clears throat> A strong op- opponent, but I didn't feel that. I felt like the, that they weren't telling us the truth. That it wasn't, you know. I always felt that. I always felt like the reason um, that we were at war was because of the rubber that was over there, um, and and uh, the rubber plants that were over there, and there was some other thing that that was of interest to America at the time. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, that was the reason why we were there. We weren't there to fight communists per se. It was. You it know, was a cold war. Man. Yeah, you know. Um, the other part of it is is that uh, the president of that country was at one point was considered the George Washington of that country, uh, um, Ho Chi Minh, because no, he was. No, no, Ho Chi Minh was Ho Chi Minh was North Vietnam. No, no. Yes, he was. He was head of North Vietnam, the one who we fought against. Yes. You mean North Vietnam? No, North Vietnam. Yeah, not yeah, South yeah. Vietnam. That's what that's what I'm saying is that yeah. he was the people that we were fighting against at one time was considered the George. He was considered the George Washington of Vietnam because he was the first one that fought against the French. He beat the French. He finally battled in Den Bien Phu. Right. Yeah. That's the reason why they considered him the first, yeah. uh, or at least that's what I used to see. No, he was considered a, a, an, a, an important leader. And then uh, when he defeated the French, uh, we stepped in and took, took the battle. Yeah, which, is the, was, which was the wrong move on our part. Yeah, but we fought, Ho Chi Minh fought, beat the French. He fought the Japanese in World War II, yeah. and he fought the Chinese before that. He's a, a very powerful guy. 
I mean, very powerful in terms of, of his yeah. his resolve to keep foreign interests out of his country, and that's you know that's what it was well, about. Well, you know what happened is that they uh, we didn't care about that rubber. We just wanted to stop Russia from and the communism communists from expanding. You think uh, you yeah, think that it was. wasn't those economic reasons? They, they we never had any trading, major trading with Vietnam. Okay. Okay, yeah. then I was wrong about that. But um yeah. I thought that was no part of the reason as well. No. Going back to Kennedy, it was a whole it was it was during the Cold War, man. You, you every the, the world was literally broken into two camps. Yeah. And you wouldn't you wouldn't give an inch. You know, uh and we had uh uh, major atrocities that we committed in that war. Sure. Definitely yeah, crimes na- against humanity. Napalm and the whole thing. Yeah, so there was, there was, in my thinking, there was absolutely nothing good about it. I mean, I, I tried to get out not only student deferment, I tried conscientious ejector, they turned me down. I tried medical. Um, I fought with them for, for a while, but I wasn't by myself. I mean, I was I was at the end. When I was at the end, I was either going to get not go. They were going to let leave me alone, or I was going to go to jail or leave the country. Those were my only three very, very real, real realistic hours. options. Right, because I was not going to uh, participate in the Vietnam War. Daniel Ellsberg, man, his contribution, he made a sacrifice with the Pentagon Papers uh, and that exposed so much of what was going on. Did they take him to court at one? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They made his life like hell. Yeah. But uh, over time, the mood of the country changed with Vietnam and the majority of people were against it. Don't forget... Vietnam brought down the whole war in Vietnam brought down Johnson. Yeah, yeah. One of the most powerful presidents since FDR. Yeah. If it, it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for the war, if he didn't get further involved in the war, he would have had a second term as president. He might have been uh, thought of, his legacy as, as being one of the strongest presidents in yeah. this country. He did all the anti-poverty stuff. He did the civil rights bills. Yeah. The voter registration bill, the uh, civil rights bill. He got things yeah. done. Yeah, he yeah. was, a, you know, he was a uh, 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 a wheeling dealing president. Okay, man, uh, that was our little issue on social justice. But you know what we're really here for, folks? We're here for some jazz, and it's summertime. So let's kick things off in summertime with a little uh, music. And this piece is called Summertime, and this is by Oscar Peterson. Oscar Peterson. Summertime. Enjoy.
Oscar Peterson, Summertime. Oscar Peterson, of course, is Canadian. And he was born in 1925, passed away in 2007 at the age of 82. And that's the Gershwin classic from that black opera, Porgy and Bess, Summertime. So many jazz musicians uh, played versions of this piece. How'd you like that piece, Larry? Yeah, it was great. I love uh, listening to Oscar Peterson because of the, you know, it's, it's, uh, the way that he plays that piano. You know, like the, the notes are so crisp. Uh, you can just like ding, ding. You know, it's like really good. I love listening to it. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's, he's a well-known and respected piano, jazz piano player. Well, folks, you know, this has been a very interesting last week of the Supreme Court. You know, they came down with two big decisions, man. And one was the affirmative action, uh, excluding the use of race as a factor in emissions. Uh, it's very interesting. That suit, you know, it's been painted as blacks versus Asians but that's not the case in reality. Suit was brought by a Caucasian man who had uh, been trying to get race out of the admission process for a long time. But here's the truth. 2% of black college students are affected by affirmative action. Only 2%. And it's only your highly selective elite colleges, the top eight, eight, nine, ten colleges, the Yale, the Princeton's, the Harvard's, nobody else used that. And it's not the reason why an Asian student may not get in. We're only looking at a small number of black students. Harvard takes in, and this is the main school that's in the affirmative action argument, Harvard takes in 4% of the applicants, 4% of the people who apply. That means 96% of the people who apply for, to Harvard University are not accepted. Now, these are usually very good students and in the top of their class at their particular high school. Uh, and so when you look at things from that perspective, that small amount of 2% of black students who go to these top schools is, is almost insignificant. But if you say, okay, that 2% receive some advantage for being African-American or Hispanic or being some other group, that's nothing when you take in Harvard University where 43% of the students receive an advantage because of legacy. And legacy has to do with parents, grandparents graduating from that institution, family members making major donations to that institution, or students having some decent skills in some very unique kinds of things like golf, tennis, rowing, are uh, giving advantages in the admission process. So 43% of everybody goes to Harvard, 
of the white students have that advantage. So if there's a group who have an advantage that's limiting the number of Asian students, then it's, it's, it's by numbers, the white students. Even though there's a pretty large percentage of Asian students and at Harvard and all the other elite schools. Larry? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I see your, 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 your point. I, I wasn't aware of the numbers. Um, and those are some very significant numbers when you think about what this uh, ruling has done, you know. So you take away the, the, that 2%, uh, and it's not significant at all. No, I mean, it's not. It's not. It's not, not significant at all. Uh, that's not really going to help the Asian students. I mean, like, no, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a play it's, on race. Yeah, what, which is what I I thought. Which the guy is denying the guy that 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 uh, that started this. He's been trying to do this for years. And exactly. He finally got the court in his favor, uh, and uh, I saw him on sixty Minutes, and he denies like it has, has anything to do with uh, him being uh, racist or anything of that nature. It's just that uh, he's trying to apply. Uh, the Fourteenth Amendment, in order to get his way in terms of it, yeah. but I, I, I don't know, like what effect, um, based on the numbers that you just uh, cited, uh, what effect this will have in terms of, of, uh, uh, black students going to these type of universities in the future. The numbers will drop, um, and and the, the effect, numbers will drop. Yeah. it's all, all anticipated. Yeah. And the effect that it will have, like that, one of the things I was reading about, it will have an effect on uh, uh, medical uh, schools that are that are there right now, uh, and you know what happened with COVID in uh, uh, twenty was that the people in the black neighborhoods were less to considered when they came out with the vaccination. They weren't the you know they yeah. they weren't but, first but on the if list. If you look, even look at medical. The black doctors, 90% of your black doctors come from your black colleges. I, I believe There's that. There's a small number that comes from Harvard or Yale or yeah. Princeton, you know. Uh, so it's so then when you look at it that way, this, this ruling is not going to kill. I mean, it's not no. going to destroy. No. Uh, it has a minimum uh, impact. Yeah. Um, but for the Republican but Party— But it does have impact. But it's not in the university. This ruling now gives, opens the door to destroy diversity, inclusion programs in corporate America. Yes. And so there the damage will be done. Yeah. But it'll be done not only to blacks. It'll be done to everybody who are non-white yeah. male. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Including yeah. Asians. Yeah. Yeah, That's and white where, including white females. As yes, well. yes. Yeah. So there's where the damage is going to be done. Yeah, in corporate I mean, it's America. Not, it's not. I mean, I'm I'm quite sure there are probably some cases in the court right now that are, or at least are going to be started up based on this ruling right now because yeah. the court will be in their favor. Yeah. So, because then corporations no longer have to do it. But here's the irony of it. The biggest supporter on the Supreme Court was Clarence Thomas, who was a beneficiary of affirmative action yeah. at Yale Law School. Yeah. And then in the federal government, 
he was head of the Equal Opportunity yeah. uh, Program in the federal government. Yeah. Talk about hypocrite. Yeah. Well, I see, I, I have a different point of view on that. And I, I know that it's, it's probably not, you know, it's, I'm going to say it anyway. Clarence Thomas is not thinking of, or at least if, if I'm right, of the fact that what happened with him. What he's thinking about is what the 14th Amendment says. If he's making his argument based on the 14th Amendment and he's disregarding what happened to him, then he's able to compartmentalize, you know, the difference. He's able to make different compartments. The only, only problem with that argument is that the 14th Amendment is written so loosely that it could be interpreted any different, many different ways. Right. Okay. So it's not like he's doing a, a, you know, as a purist, holding up the ideal essence of the 14th Amendment because people on the other side can make the same kind of argument. That amendment was written so loosely. Yeah. That it can go many different ways. I got you. I got you. I got you. But I'm yeah. just saying, like for him, it may be the way that he's talking about it is that 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 it it applies to everybody. I mean, it doesn't just apply to blacks; it applies to everybody. So um, that's my only argument. That when I when I hear people just downing him for what he's done, is that I I think that maybe he might really think in his mind that this is the legal way to do it. Now, I may be wrong. I'm probably I may be wrong, but I'm 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 just saying that's another way to think of it that he may in fact believe what he that the well, 14th amendment. I, I think everybody who has a position on it believes their position to be correct. Yeah. So he he's not in any more uh, more believable because he has a stern position that he believes in his interpretation. Yep. Any more credibility than the people who take the opposite view who believes that their interpretation is as equally truthful. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's you know that's a given. The, yeah. The the late uh, the lady the black woman that's on the Supreme Court I forget her name Jackson uh, Jackson she recused recused herself. Because she was a, she's a, uh, uh, she's on the board of uh, Yale. I think it was Yale, yeah, uh, and that, and and that was the proper thing for her to do, you know. Um, so um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, uh, we can jump on Clarence Thomas and and, and probably right, probably rightfully so. But uh, I'm just thinking that it could be another reason. Other, I'm than just the, looking. I'm pointing out the irony. Of yeah. It. Yeah, that he he is against something that benefited him, that got him into the position to be against it. Okay, so do we we know for a fact that that he, that's the only reason why he got into Yale? No, it's not for the only reason. It's one factor. Yeah, but during the time that he was coming in, that you know, race was considered a factor. Okay, so you can't. He did not apply as a non-racial applicant. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So that's okay, the, that. Okay. So every major, every elite university was did not make that the most important factor. Yeah. But it was a factor. So that on the application itself, you had to indicate race. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, where where it's done? But yeah. He, he he surely got in. He did not get in as a Caucasian male. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the other big big thing. That, in my mind, even bigger than the affirmative action, 
was the student loan program. Yep. Now that, unlike the affirmative action that affects only 2%, student loans affects 89% of black college students. Because the way Biden put it together is that 10% given of forgiveness, not forgiveness, well, 10%, you know, taken off for college students. And then up to 20% based on recipients of Pell Grants. And the Repel Grant is based on income. So that's where you get the 89% of the black college students today receive Pell Grants. They would have been eliminated something like $20,000 for student loans where the average black student graduates with about uh, 38,000 easily, between 30 and 50,000 in student loans. And not only would have benefited black students, it would have benefited Hispanics, whites, all students. Uh, now that would have had greater impact if that got through. And there is no uh, uh, constitutional power for the Supreme Court to get rid of it, except the fact that they gave themselves the power to rule on it. There's not based in no constitution with that. But if the president did something that was not against the law, who says the Supreme Court can get rid of it? So they they uh well they, I'm, they, I think aren't they basing it on the fact that it didn't go through uh, the legislative process? But that's it's it's not written anywhere that it has to. That they they that's the that's the what they said. That's their oh. interpretation. That's the, what they use. It's nowhere written anywhere. Okay, that's the Supreme the, Court wrote that rule by they empowered themselves by wrote, writing a rule that will deny that decision. Okay. They didn't have that power. I don't know. They, I just, they, I just, they I didn't just, have that power, Larry. I'm just saying, like, if the if the executive branch, which the, the, the idea of this is, is that one checks the other, okay? So uh, the Supreme Court is checking the executive branch. Because the Supreme the exec- Court can only the, interpret it by the Constitution. Okay, but, but, but listen to this first, okay? But the executive, uh, the judicial branch is check, yeah. checking on the executive branch because the, the judicial branch felt that the executive branch did something that superseded what the legislative branch should have done, which is to enact. Well, you said the word felt. Okay. You can't make decisions on because you felt. Where's okay. the legal precedent? There is none. Okay, then you start a precedent. You That's can't. You can't make a precedent. It doesn't go like that. You just the supreme. That's what everybody is arguing with this decision. Not so much. Uh, and then when the Supreme Court does it, there's nothing really you can do. No, that's the last. Yeah. That's the last. Stop. But it wasn't an issue for the Supreme Court. It wasn't it because it's not a constitutional issue. 
It's not a con. You you go anywhere in American history and you tell me another another situation where president budget spending was denied by the Supreme Court, not Congress. I can't. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I just I don't know. I I just think that. Uh, I know <clears throat> what you're saying. The balance of power, but yeah. this is not an issue of the balance of power. Okay. This this that's not the issue. All right. So there, there's no recourse. There, there, I mean, there is no uh, recourse in terms of. There's uh, there's another you know. There's, I there's, mean, besides besides Biden just doing what he wants to do, well, and he can't do that once the Supreme Court is getting, no, not involved with it. No. There is another recourse, yeah, and you'll probably take that action. You know, people would say, you know, the Supreme Court can't rule on executive privilege. Oh, did it, this was not executive privilege? Hmm? No. No. Then they can't. Then then that's probably what... So what would prevent him from doing an executive privilege? I don't know. He, he went one way, and... Because uh, no he went through the... Uh, the no one uh, thought that this would be... Uh, an issue? Yeah, no one thought that it would be an issue. It wasn't wasn't that. It's other people who brought it to the courts. Conservatives brought it to the court. If the conservatives didn't bring it to the court, the, the court couldn't do nothing. It's, just, it's, it's the same thing with affirmative action. Yeah, true. So you know these these are these are issues in which uh, the 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 courts have uh, have. Uh, impose themselves with, with their rulings that have major consequence. They don't sit in isolation. Forty million people would have been affected by the uh, loan, the loan program, college students. Forty million. Uh, so I, I don't understand. Like, why doesn't Biden just make an executive order? Unless it's not. I'm sure there's there's there's, there's reasons why he chose not to go that way. Uh, but I, I really have to, I have to look at what he said. But I know that he has other plans. This is not over. Okay. They're gonna they're gonna go go with this. See, I think an, an afford like court. like the affordable, um, uh, not affordable, but um, the affirmative action. I think that there's gonna be ways to go around this thing. Well, yeah, the, the universities already said, okay, we won't include race, but we would look at it in essays. So they're going to put the, emphasis, the greater emphasis on student essays and letters of recommendation. So if you include uh, uh, a life that had been handicapped or difficulties due to race, you know, you got to play these word games. Games, yeah, that's what I'm but, saying. But I, it, it, it will, they, they'll go around it. They're going to keep diversity in the student population because that's what you need on a college setting that 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 keeps that uh, academic fire going yeah uh, so that's something that that will continue with the universities the point with that was it's just a very small number of elite colleges with a very small percentage of black students uh, with that and that the affirmative action will have impact on jobs and corporate America okay Let's get back to some jazz, folks. We got a little sidetrack here. But uh, 
Uh, let's play some Miles Davis and John Coltrane from a concert done in 1960. This is Early Miles, Early Train, a recording in Paris. Bye-bye, uh, Blackbird. John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Bye-bye, Blackbird, recorded in Paris, 1960.
That's classic Miles Davis, John Coltrane, at their best. Recorded in Paris in 1960 with Miles Davis on trumpet, John Coltrane on sax, Winston Kelly on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Jimmy Cobbs on the drums. Man, that's at his best, both Miles Davis and John Coltrane. I want to uh, split up. I want to change it up a little. Uh, that's 1960, folks, and you, well, we can talk about that, but that's a classic. Let's play some modern stuff. Some of the new guys out here. Here's a guy called Emmett Cohen, hell of a piano player, with Seamus Blake, a sax player, and Troy Roberts, sax player. Young boys. And this is a piece they did, uh, Tenor Madness. Uh, so let's listen to some young folks yeah. kick it. Tenor Madness, Emmett Cohen. Thank you. 
That's Emmett Cohen uh, on a piece called Tenor Madness that was first recorded in the early 1960s with John Coltrane and Sonny Rollins. He had Seamus Blake on uh, sax, uh, Tony, Ro- Tony Roberts on sax, Russell Hall on bass, and Jonathan Barber on the drums. And Emmett Cohen is making a name for himself, man. Well-respected young jazz piano player, Larry. That sounded really good. I mean, I really, I really liked their interpretation of Tender Madness. Um, it was really good. I, I uh, you know, I, I, I heard a little bit of, uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of the original right there. Um, I mean, I liked, the, I liked the interpretation. I liked what they did with it. It was really good. And the piano player was uh, Emmett Cohen. Emmett Cohen. I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna try to look him up a little bit. See what's happening with him. And he sounded good too. He sounded really good. Yeah, he's been out there. Here's another young player who's been on the scene a little while. Uh, Veronica Swift, and she does this piece with uh, uh, Winton Marcellus called Cherokee. Uh, but you got to listen to the solo by Winston Marcellus and then listen to her. So, sit back and enjoy.
since I first met you I can't forget you Sweet Cherokee Child of the prairie Your love is calling My arms in There's one simple hearing hack anyone can use to improve their hearing. I forgot that was there, folks. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, we can't let that interfere, though. You know, we uh, got to get back to her, man. So, hey. So let's enjoy her.
Wow, that's Winston Marcellus, man. I'm sorry about that interruption, but Veronica Swift. That was beautiful. That was just out of sight, man. I really, uh, wow. <laughs> She's such a small little thing. And she got such a booming voice. It is really beautiful what, yeah. what I just saw. Yeah, she's uh, been around for the last six or seven years, man. Uh, maybe a little longer, uh-huh. but not that long. Uh, so that she's another young young artist out there, and uh, well, we're gonna go all, go out because it's that time, folks, on another young artist who is a pretty powerful man. She's a singer, Akua Allrich. Akua, A-K-U-A, Orich. Uh, and she's going to sing one of uh, Nina Simone classics, Cinnamon. So, folks, we're going to go out on this. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I hope you enjoy this podcast. And, uh, and as always, folks, until the next time, peace and love.